Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Emily Fridlin at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Emily Fridlin's opus, History of Wolves, straddles the line between thriller and coming-of-age novel. Fridlin's teenage protagonist, Linda, is an outsider in her close-knit Northwoods community. She finally finds a sense of belonging, babysitting for the eccentric Gardner family. But the role comes with expectations and secrets she is ill-equipped to handle. History of Wolves shortlisted Fridlin for the 2017 Man Booker Prize. Before and after its release, the book won a host of other honors besides. It is a number one indie next pick, Barnes & Noble Discovers Great New Writers selection, New York Times Editor's Choice, and a USA Today notable book. National Public Radio notes, Fridlin does a remarkable job transcending genres without sacrificing the suspense that builds steadily in the book. It is as beautiful and as icy as the Minnesota woods where it's set. And with her first book, Fridlin has already proven herself to be a singular talent. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, Such a gorgeous, amazing May day in Minnesota, Um, and uh, it's amazing that you came and decided to sit inside and talk about books with me tonight. Um, Thank you so much uh, to Club Book and its sponsors, um, to Common Good Books. I want to thank, in particular, the library system. here in the metropolitan area. I grew up in in the Twin Cities, um, and I grew up riding my bike in the summers when the weather got warm like this to the Dinah Public Library off of 100. Um, It was my childhood library, and this is definitely library weather for me. When when summers rolled around, I would uh, ride my bike to the library and um, check out a stack of books, you know, a column of books, and somehow lug them all home. And I have to admit, I um, was not always really good about returning them all on time. I always seemed to forget some when I was returning them. But the library was forgiving, and I appreciate that. Um, And so I always think of that library um, in Edina as just a real sanctuary um, and a starting point and uh, kind of a portal to so many different worlds for me. So I I do want to thank the library system. Um, while I'm here. It meant a lot to me growing up. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from my debut novel, History of Wolves, and I'm going to uh, 
uh, also speak a little bit about the process um, of writing this book and some of the ideas behind the book um, as I go, as I read from excerpts. Uh, so I'm going to check in before I jump in and start some reading and make sure that you can hear me. Yeah. All right. Um, so I think this book is potentially about a lot of things. I hope it is potentially about a lot of things. But at least one of those things is memory. Um, and the way in which a few years in a life, a few events in a life, um, sometimes even a moment, uh, can be an axis, a turning point for an entire life. Um, and I think this opening chapter, and really the first uh, passage in the book, the first paragraph, offers a glimpse into one of those kinds of moments um, that, that becomes really important to the, to the main character of this book. So before I talk about the book um, at any length, I'd like to just read that opening uh, paragraph. It's not that I never think about Paul. He comes to me occasionally before I'm fully awake, though I almost never remember what he said or what I did or didn't do to him. In my mind, the kid just plops down into my lap. Boom. That's how I know it's him. There's no interest in me, no hesitation. We're sitting in the nature center on a late afternoon like any other, and his body moves automatically toward mine, not out of love or respect, but simply because he hasn't yet learned the etiquette of minding where his body stops and another begins. He's four. He's got an owl puzzle to do. Don't talk to him. I don't. Outside the window, an avalanche of poplar fluff floats by, silent and weightless as air. The sunlight shifts. The puzzle cleaves into an owl and comes apart again. I prod Paul to standing. Time to go. It's time. But in the second before we rise, before he winds out his protest and asks to stay a little longer, he leans back against my chest, yawning and my throat cinches closed. Because it's strange, you know, it's marvelous and sad too, how good it can feel to have your body taken for granted. So this book takes place in Minnesota. Um, and I, I grew up in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities here. Um, but the book was actually born in Los Angeles of all places. Uh, I was going to school at the University of Southern California. Uh, I was living in Hollywood uh, when I began this book. Uh, and every day I would uh, walk through the crowds of tourists on Hollywood Boulevard. I don't know if anyone here has been to Hollywood Boulevard. Um, but there are all these costume superheroes, right, who want to take pictures or uh, sort of encourage tourists to, take, to have pictures taken with them so they can get some money. Um, and I would, I would sort of fight my way through this crowd. And um, every day there was a, a Chucky, a knife-wielding Chucky from the horror movie, who would leap out at me with a knife um, before I got on the subway and went to school. And, and I, I say this um, because the place where this novel was born, or where I began writing it, uh, in some ways couldn't be farther from the place I was writing about. Um, I was writing about the north woods of Minnesota, um, this very isolated, um, wintry spot. And at the time I was living in the heat and grit um, and strangeness that is uh, Los Angeles. 
Um, and I think that that was important, actually. I think there was something about being very far from the Midwest, very far from Minnesota, very far from the seasons as I knew them, and uh, winter as I understood it, um, and even far from the cold. I found myself missing cold, if you could imagine that, after this long winter here in Minnesota. Um, I, I did miss the cold. And so, um, so being in LA not only made it possible for me to sort of conjure this place that is at the heart of this book, but also created a kind of yearning in me to return um, imaginatively to this place. Um, that, that really was a combination of several things. Um, it was built out of memory of going up north when I was a kid, um, some experiences that I had, um, especially um, uh, high school experiences, um, and um, also imagination, um, for sure. The, the voice of this novel um, is, uh, the, the novel is told by a woman, uh, Madeline, um, also known as Linda, or Maddie, but I'll call her Linda for now. Linda looking back on a few important events in her life, and she is extremely isolated. Um, she was born into, the back, into a back-to-the-land style commune that broke up when she was really, really young, before she can really remember. And, um, and she's raised by people she believes are her parents, but she's not sure, on the edge of this little lake, on the edge of this little town, um, in, in, the, in the middle of this North Woods. Um, and so um, the, the voice of this book um, and the place of this book were always sort of inextricable to me. Um, that's something that I, I want to say from the beginning. Um, people often ask about the place, um, and I say the place came out of the voice, out of this, this, this girl um, who became a woman um, full of, of guilt and regret. Um, and, uh, and so when I was living in Los Angeles, I was writing this short story that uh, I finished and thought I, I was done with and, and put away, um, but the voice um, this, this, this person um, with her yearning and her loneliness kept coming back to me. And her difficulty, she's a, a strange person, um, a person who made me curious, um, who I didn't entirely understand as a writer. Um, and so um, Linda, who comes out of this very isolated, this very cold place, um, is also projecting some of that loneliness and coldness onto the place that she lives in um, and as she describes it. So I thought it might be nice to give you a little bit of a sense for that voice. If you haven't read the book, and if you have, you'll, you'll maybe remember these passages. But um, to give you a sense for the voice and the place um, by reading just a few more paragraphs from near the beginning. Before Paul, I'd known just one person who'd gone from living to dead. He was Mr. Adler, my eighth grade history teacher. He wore brown corduroy suits and white tennis shoes, and though his subject was America, he preferred to talk about czars. He once showed us a photograph of Russia's last emperor, and that's how I think of him now, black-bearded, tassel-shouldered, though in fact Mr. Adler was always clean-shaven and plodding. I was in English class when his fourth-period student burst in, saying Mr. Adler had fallen. We crowded across the hall, and there he lay face down on the floor, eyes closed, blue lips suctioning the carpet. Does he have epilepsy? Someone asked. Does he have pills? We were all repulsed. 
The Boy Scouts argued over proper CPR techniques, while the gifted and talented kids reviewed his symptoms in hysterical whispers. I had to force myself to go to him. I crouched down and took Mr. Adler's dry, neat hand. It was early November. He was darkening the carpet with drool, gasping in air between longer and longer intervals. And I remember a distant bonfire scent. Someone was burning garbage in plastic bags, some janitor getting rid of leaves and pumpkin rinds before the first big snow. When the paramedics finally loaded Mr. Adler's body onto a stretcher, the Boy Scouts trailed behind like puppies, hoping for an assignment. They wanted a door to open, something heavy to lift. In the hallway, girls stood sniffling in clumps. A few teachers held their palms to their chest, uncertain what to say or do next. That a door song? One of the paramedics asked. He stayed behind to pass out packets of saltines to lightheaded students. I shrugged. I must have been humming out loud. He gave me orange Gatorade in a Dixie cup, saying, as if I were the one he'd come to save, as if his duty were to root out sickness in whatever living thing he could find. Drink slow now. Do it in sips. The walleye capital of the world, we were called back then. There was a sign to this effect out on Route 10 <coughs> and a mural of three mohawked fish on the side of the diner. Those guys were always waving a finny hello, grins and eyebrows, teeth and gums, but no one came from out of town to fish or do much at all once the big lakes froze up in November. We didn't have a resort in those days, only a seedy motel. Downtown went diner, hardware, bait and tackle, bank. The most impressive place in Loose River back then was the old timber mill, I think, and that was because it was half burned down, charred black planks towering over the banks of the river. Almost everything official, the hospital and DMV and Burger King and police station, were 20 plus miles down the road in Whitewood. The day the Whitewood paramedics took Mr. Adler away, they tooted the ambulance horn as they left the school parking lot. We all stood at the windows and watched, even the hockey players in their yellowed caps, even the cheerleaders with their static-charged bangs. Snow was coming down by then, hard. As the ambulance slid around the corner, its headlights raked crazily through the flurries gusting across the road. Shouldn't there be sirens? Someone asked. And I thought, measuring the last swallow of Gatorade in my little waxed cup, how stupid can people be? So, um, as I said, this, this book um, takes the voice of an adult woman looking back um, on these events in Loose River uh, when she was 14 and then later in the book 15 years old. Um, in her very isolated existence, um, she finds that, that two things happen um, that puncture uh, her loneliness and her isolation. Um, the first is when Mr. Adler dies, a new teacher uh, comes into town, Mr. Grierson, and she is asked by him to be uh, a representative for History Odyssey uh, in a kind of local extracurricular activity. Um, and the second thing that happens is that a new family moves in across the lake, and she becomes a babysitter for the little boy, Paul, um, who lives across the lake from her. Uh, one of the experiments at the heart of this book uh, was to think about the ways in which things that happen in a life at the same time 
um, that are otherwise maybe not related might find resonance uh, when one person experiences both of them at the same time. Um, the ways in which we, I think, as people tend to take or, or haul in from one part of our lives a set of ideas and sometimes apply them to the other parts of our lives um, and see contrasts and connections, even when those things don't entirely overlap um, in any other way but in one's own mind. Um, so I was playing with that idea um, uh, by sort of connecting these two plots, that of Mr. Grierson, um, who, and I'm not revealing too much when I say, um, eventually is accused of possessing child pornography, and worse, actually, um, and is fired. Uh, but I wanted to connect that plot line, um, or s at least set it side by side with this other plot line um, with Linda and her encounters in this family across the lake <coughs> from her. So um, I thought I might read just a tiny bit from that first plot line to give you a taste for it, and then a little bit from the second um, to, uh, to begin to think through some of the possible resonances. As I said, Mr. Grierson, the new teacher, invites Linda to be a representative for History Odyssey. So this is a section from that portion of the book. Mr. Grierson treated History Odyssey like we both knew it was a chore. Secretly, I wanted to win. I was determined to see a wolf. Nights I went out in mucklucks, a ski mask, and my father's down jacket, which was redolent with his scents, with tobacco and mildew and bitter coffee. It was like wearing his body while he slept, like earning a right to his presence and silence and bulk. I sat on an old ice bucket near the furthest fish house and sipped boiled water from a thermos. But it was rare for a wolf to be spotted here so late in winter. All I ever saw were distant logs squirming with crows. In the end, I had to settle for a dead one. Saturdays, I snowshoed to the Forest Center Nature Center, where I studied the stuffed bitch in the lobby. With her glass eyes and coral nails, her sunken black cheeks pulled back in what looked like a smile. Peg, the naturalist there, pouted when she saw me try to touch the wolf's tail. Uh-uh. She scolded. She gave me gummy bears and taxidermy techniques, told me how to sculpt eyelids from clay and muscles from polyurethane foam. Iron the skin, iron the skin, she warned me. On the morning of the History Odyssey tournament, I sawed a branch from the old pine behind our house. Needles poured in little wick-wick propellers onto the snow. I took the casino bus to Whitewood after school, lugging my wolf poster and branch past the old people from the retirement's home who frowned at me but didn't say anything. In the Whitewood High School auditorium, I propped the branch against the lectern to create the crucial atmosphere. I played a tape of howling wolves on repeat. Though my mouth was dry when I began my speech, I didn't have to use my notes and I didn't rock back and forth like the boy who went before me. I was focused, calm. I pointed to diagrams of pups in different displays of submission, and quoting from a book, I said, the term alpha evolved to describe captive animals is still misleading. An alpha animal may be alpha only at certain times for a specific reason. Those words always made me feel like I was drinking something cool and sweet, something forbidden. I thought of the black bitch at the nature center, fixed in her posture of doggy friendliness, and I recited that part of my speech over again, slowly this time, like it was an amendment to the Constitution. Afterward, one of the judges poked his pencil in the air. 
but I have to intervene here. There's something you haven't explained very well. What do wolves have to do with human history? It was then that I saw Mr. Grierson by the door. He had his jacket in his arms like he'd just come in, and I watched as he caught the eye of the judge and shrugged. It was the subtlest shift of his shoulders, as if to say, what can you do with these kids? What can you do with these teenage girls? I took a deep breath and glared at both of them. Wolves have nothing at all to do with humans, actually. If they can help it, they avoid them. They gave me the originality prize, which was a bouquet of carnations dyed green for St. Patrick's Day. Afterward, Mr. Grierson wanted to know if we should load the pine branch in his car with a poster to drive back to school. I was depressed and shook my head. The winner, a seventh grade girl in a pantsuit, was getting her picture taken with her watercolor rendering of the sinking of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. I buttoned my coat, then followed Mr. Grierson as he dragged the drooping branch out a side exit. He javelined it upright in a grainy bank of snow. It's like a Charlie Brown Christmas, he said, laughing. I want to hang tinsel from it. It's cute. He bent down to brush stray needles from his slacks, and on impulse, I thrust out a hand and brushed as well, swish, swish, against his thigh. He stepped back, did a little shake of his pants, laughed awkwardly. Men can be so ungainly when it comes to sex. I learned that later. But at the time, what I'd done didn't feel sexual. Let me be clear about that. It felt like grooming, or like coaxing a dog to you, watching its hackles rise and fall, and then you have a pet. I licked my lips, Lily Holborn style, deer-like, innocent as anything. I said, Mr. Grierson, would you mind driving me home? So as you know, this book is called A History of Wolves. Um, and those people who haven't read the book often come up to me and, and ask, is it a book about wolves, right? And oh, I'm so sorry to say, if you haven't read it yet, I cannot recommend this book if you want to learn about actual wolves in, in the woods. Um, that is not going to happen. I do like to point out, um, the hardcover has this lovely wolf um, on the inner cover, and I'm always eager to show that off because I think it's so beautiful. Um, and uh, the soft cover also has it uh, on the second cover. So there is a wolf in there of sorts. Um, but then I'm often asked as a second question by those who haven't read it or by those who have, um, what do the wolves represent? Who are the wolves in this book? And I'm so tempted always to respond to that question with, well, who are the wolves to you? Who do you think the wolves are? Um, my husband, who's from Missouri, not that far away, um, he will say that answering a question with a question is a very Minnesotan thing to do. Um, and so I'm not going to put you through that um, and, and ask you all to answer that question um, because you might just answer that with another question and we'll be in an endless um, loop of question asking. Um, but I also then like to point back to this scene, the scene that I just read when people ask about the title. Um, I think it's important to, to ask and think about what are the wolves to Linda in particular, this, this, this girl, um, this, this voice at the heart of the book. Um, she quotes from Barry Lopez. Um, has anyone here read Barry Lopez? Yeah, some of you. He's fantastic. If you want a real history of wolves, go read his book. Um, he has written really beautifully about wolves. And she quotes from him, basically saying the alpha may only be alpha at certain times for a particular reason. 
Um, and this is an idea that's incredibly compelling to a 14-year-old girl, um, especially one who's been overlooked in most parts of her life. Um, the idea that the people in power, or those in power, um, may not always be the ones that you think are going to hold the power forever. That power might be context-based, that it might shift depending on what's happening. That is a very, very compelling idea to Linda. Um, and it's something that she seizes upon. Um, in that moment even that I just read, right? Um, uh, again, I, I'm not revealing too much to say that Mr. Grierson is a sexual predator. Um, Linda senses something about that early on. And just for a moment, just for a moment here, um, she herself becomes a bit predatory with the sexual predator. She, she reaches out, she's aggressive with him, at least for a moment. Um, and that happens almost um, repeatedly throughout this book. Um, Linda seizes upon moments in which she or she, uh, the people around her are upending the hierarchies of power that seem fixed. Um, those between parent um, and child, between teacher and student, between male and female. Um, she's interested in seeing those moments where the, the power falls in a way that's not entirely expected. Um, and so that's, that's in part what she's drawn to when she thinks about wolves in this book. Um, <coughs> I should say, maybe I'll reveal this here, since I'm in Minnesota, um, not much of this character, Linda, is uh, autobiographical. There is some, but there's not a lot. Um, I did not grow up in a, a cabin without electricity, as she did. Um, but the one piece that is, in fact, is that I did a wolf project when I was about Linda's age um, for Minnesota History Day, um, probably back in the early 90s. Um, and I presented this um, with a good friend uh, at uh, the Minnesota History Museum, um, not too far from here. Um, so, so I was thinking about, as I wrote this passage, what drew me to wolves at that age? Um, and in particular, what drew Linda, um, what draws Linda to wolves? Um, why might they be particularly compelling, even though Linda's written off by Mr. Grierson and by the judges a little bit, they laugh at her. Um, there's something um, important about the way she's um, interested in these creatures and what they represent to her. Um, so as I said, she's, she's thinking about these moments in which power is a little bit slippery um, and in the second plot in the book that I, that I introduce, uh, she becomes a babysitter for the family that moves in across the lake, um, <coughs> the gardeners. Uh, the mother is 26, um, Patra, and her son is four, and uh, Linda is drawn into this family um, and, and, and spends a lot of time with them. The father, for at least the first part of the book, is away. He's a scientist and he's doing research in Hawaii. And it was really important to me, actually, that the, uh, that the boy is four, that Linda is 15. At this point in the book, she's now 15. And the mother is 26. Uh, there's 11 years between each of these characters. Uh, and the idea for me was to think a little bit about how the peculiarities of that age, right? Uh, where you can slide between f feeling like a child. And there are moments in which Linda identifies more with Paul um, and you can also slide towards adulthood. And there are moments in which Linda identifies much more with Patra and even her husband, um, who's older yet. Um, and that, that slipperiness was, was interesting to me. I think it's not just true of Linda, but, but a lot of adolescents, right? 
um, that, that you can feel like a child in some moments and very much like an adult in others. And Linda is incredibly canny um, and sees through certain characters at some points. And there are other moments in which she's incredibly naive um, and does not see what others might see, most of us would see, um, because of not only her, her youth, but also her, her isolation. And so that, that combination of knowing and not knowing at the same time was something that was really important to me as a writer as I was thinking about her um, as a character. And the other piece, of course, is her position as a babysitter. Uh, when I was writing this book, uh, or just before I was writing this book, I was reading quite deeply into the, the Gothic tradition of the, the governess story. Um, I was thinking a lot about um, books like The Turn of the Screw um, by Henry James and Jane Eyre. Um, uh, by Charlotte Bronte. And I was thinking about the peculiarities of, of those books, of those, of those characters, those governesses, who, uh, who sit or stand, I should say, in a position in which they can see the intimate details of a family, but they're also outsiders within that family. Um, and, and that creates, again, this very, very strange sense of, of something happening that you don't entirely understand or can't entirely wrap your mind around. If you think, if you think of um, Jane Eyre and, um, and the, the woman in the attic, right? And her, her sort of sense that something is happening in that house, but, but not knowing for so long um, what that is. And I was, I was interested in, in kind of playing with that with <coughs> Linda's role as a babysitter as well. Um, if you think about power as relative and context-based, as constantly shifting, um, then the question that is always on one's mind is, who is responsible? Who is in charge, right? And the attendant question uh, to those is, what should we be afraid of? What is there to fear? And that's the question that Linda, in the first part of the book at least, is, is asking herself. She senses that there is something to fear, but she can't quite put her finger on what or who it is. Um, and so to get at a sense of that, I thought I would read a piece from a little bit later in the book um, when she's a babysitter uh, for Paul, and she spends some time in the woods with him, and then with Patra. Once, as I was helping Paul slide off a boulder, we came upon a mallard nest so far from shore that the ducklings could do nothing but waddle in yellow, panicked circles to get away. Paul reached down to touch one. The brown mother winged a few feet back, then waited empty-eyed for the disaster to play itself out. Her feathers gleamed with a faint hint of purple, unruffled and smooth as scales. She did nothing to intervene, and so neither did I, as Paul grabbed at one of the ducklings. He had good intentions. He was a gentle enough kid. At the last minute, though, he pulled his hand back as if spooked, as if he'd felt something horrible beneath all that fluffy down, something brittle and hard and unexpected. Oh, he said. What, I asked, newly impatient with him. His squeamishness goaded me somehow, made me a little angry. I wanted him to take the duckling and do something heartless and boyish, so I'd have to remind him to be kind. I don't know. I wanted to be the one to stop him when he discovered the, fra the fragile contraption of bones beneath that halo of down. I wanted to intervene on behalf of animals. It irritated me that he was so careful and afraid. We stood and watched as the duckling waddled off to its mother and the troop reconvened in a huddle under a pine. 
For a strange instant, I found myself longing to lift a rock and throw it at them. I wanted to show Paul something, maybe, make him scared of the right things. Or another time, an early evening, as Paul and I were cresting the last hill, as I was squinting into the darkening woods to make out the path, a couple of deer lifted their heads at once and differentiated themselves from the trees. We stared at them and they at us for a full 30 seconds without moving. They multiplied as we looked at them. There were three at first, then there were four, then there were five. They were the exact color of the bark and leaves, gray-brown, but the skin around their eyes was red. I felt the breeze on their backs lift the braid from my chest and set it down over my shoulder. They're going to get us, Paul whispered. He reached for my hand. They're a herd, I reminded him. They're afraid of us. Two more appeared. Paul shivered. It's okay, it's okay, they're prey, I soothed. The deer silvered under the wind, their pink ears twitched. I knew they would take off in an instant. I could see their haunches tense. But even I had the irrational thought that they were about to run right for us. They seemed ready to bear down. Then off they went over the far ridge, white tails lifted, hopping with that mechanical grace animals have, grasshoppers and birds, as if nothing save death could interrupt the repetitive beat of their movements. Branches rattled old rain down on us. We were alone. Fee-fi-fo-fum, soup from a can, lettuce from a bag, cat hair on my sweater. The cats creeping from the windowsill to the rug where they rolled religiously, unlatching their claws on each other. A video of a talking book. Slow down, Paul, who was gulping apple juice so fast it seemed it seeped down his chin. My hunting jacket hung from a hook, still holding the shape of my hunched up shoulders. On the roof, squirrels scampering. In the ground, maple seeds and bearberry leaching down hairy new roots. Across the lake, across the lake and beneath the pines, dogs. The dogs dragging their chains, getting hungry, waiting for me to come home. Across the lake, my mother, too, forgetting to turn the light on in the evening, and maybe, or maybe not, watching everything. Patra, after Paul went to bed, she came out of the back bedroom with her hair in her face as if she'd been sleeping. She'd given me a hundred-piece puzzle of an Appaloosa horse to work on while she gave Paul a bath. And when she came out blinking, she seemed surprised I was still at it. Oh, Linda, <laughs> she said, when she saw me at the table, surrounded by the scattered debris of the puzzle. I put my hands under the table, found a thread on my sweater's cuff to unravel and tug. Hey, I told her. She felt bad about forgetting me, I guess, because she got busy fast fixing snacks, microwave popcorn, and hard-boiled eggs. She put them into two baggies for me to eat as I walked home, everything white and warm, one light as leaves, the other steaming up the plastic. I put them in my two jacket pockets. Is it too dark to walk in the woods by yourself? She wondered then, but only idly as she glanced out the window where a branch clicked against the glass. She fished a $10 bill from her wallet and handed it over. Nope, I said, rolling the bill into a tube, which I pretended to survey her through like a miniature telescope. There you are, I said. Ha, Patra replied, but she wasn't really laughing. I folded the tube in half, and then, just like that, a gust of humiliation shot through me, as if I were Mr. Grierson making the telephone joke, as if Patra and Lily were humoring me to get done with things. 
Ha, even her laugh was saying goodbye. Why didn't I just leave? All I had to do was blink. All I had to do was lift my mind away from her, and I could already see all those old trees blowing overhead as I walked along the lake, the same old moon scraping open some clouds and laying down a path of light. Oh, I liked night. I knew it well. But for some reason, I was finding it hard to open the door. I stashed the folded bill in my pocket with the egg and spent a long time on my jacket zipper. I think I'll stop that scene here. Um, <coughs> as I said, I think this book um, is potentially about a lot of things, memory and regret, um, agency and responsibility, uh, witness, are we responsible for what we see, uh, action and inaction. But I always, always thought of this book as something of a love story too, which those of you who read it may find surprising. I always thought of it as um, a book that's propelled by Linda's desire for love. And, um, and because of that, I think even in the scenes that I read, um, you might be able to see them as a series of seductions or attempted seductions. Um, Linda reaching out uh, to Mr. Grierson and touching his pants. Um, Linda uh, here with Patra trying to make a connection, bids for attention, bids for connection, um, propel this, this character over and over again. And her desire to find some little piece of happiness, which she does temporarily in this family. Um, it is temporary. And another one of the things I was thinking a lot about, especially as I got further in this book, is the way in which happiness itself becomes an excuse to not act. Um, in so many ways, these characters fail uh, each other, and, and in particular, Paul, the little boy, because they are unwilling to disrupt the status quo, um, the, the little bits of happiness that they have found. Linda, in, in her role as a babysitter with his family this summer, um, Patra, the wife, the mother, uh, because of her relationship to her, her husband um, and the, the life that she's created for herself. Um, so many characters fail to act uh, because of, of a desire to, to keep things from falling apart as they see it. And the victim of that, of course, is Paul. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say how he dies. Uh, it was very important to me as a writer to say that he does die um, right in the very beginning of the book, um, within the first page or two. Uh, and about halfway through the book, I decided to reveal how he dies. Um, the idea there was to align the reader uh, in the first part of the book with that younger girl, Linda, as a teenager, um, to put the reader in the position of being a bit confused, to not really know what was happening, and yet sense that something is not quite right. Um, the second half of the book it sort of is opened up by, by the revelation of how he dies, and, and that is the knowledge that Linda carries as an adult narrator looking back. Um, and it's the way in which I wanted the, the reader to, to encounter those events as, an, uh, as, they, as they happened and unfolded in the second part of the book, um, to, to know that, it, that what's happening is potentially avoidable, um, and yet to watch it happen nonetheless.
And that, that's something that Linda struggles with looking back, um, knowing that she might have done something, but she didn't uh, for whatever reason, for lots of reasons. Um, I know I want to leave a little bit of time for questions, but um, I think I'd like to finish with a, sh a short passage that returns to Paul, actually, who can get lost in this book a little bit. Um, but he is at the center of what happens. And, and this last passage I'm going to read actually returns us to that first opening paragraph that I, that I read at the beginning, the very first paragraph in the book, which talks about Linda remembering a moment in the Nature Center with Paul. And it's, uh, it's an ordinary day, uh, one that might go by and, and not be remembered, except for what happens to Paul. Um, and in the second half of the book, we now know that he um, will not survive. And this ordinary day then becomes extraordinary. Uh, so the, the gorgeousness of the day, it's a May day, maybe not so unlike today, um, with the cottonwood and the, and the, and the brilliant sunlight, um, should have an ominous tone when we encounter it again. Um, it's the last moment in the book that we see Paul alive. When Paul was excited, he ran with big moon landing steps. He always looked as if he were concentrating very hard, saying to himself, run, run, and each time the word went through his head, he'd take a slightly more determined leap into the air. When I told him to run faster, he'd just run higher, and his pace would slow way down. He'd do all this useless work, hiking up his knees, pumping his fists. It was great to watch, and I was only a little cruel in provoking him. Run, I'd say, and he'd slow down to a near crawl, almost stopping between each stride. Faster, I'd say. His lips would pinch shut. He'd shunt one arm forward and one arm back. He was a kid who'd learned to run by watching dwarves and their mine from TV, from cartoons. Race you to the house, I said to him once, and as if he'd figured it out, that day at last, he stayed put on the dock. So I took a few exaggerated steps to encourage him. I'm going to beat you, I said, offering that irresistible threat, doing a thump, thump, thump with my boots on the planks. No dice. When I looked back, he'd slunk into a lying position, belly down, his arms curled up under him on the boards. What's up, I said. I closed in on him, casually prodded him with the toe of my boot. This bear has gone into hibernation, looks like. After a moment, I'm bored. The bear is bored, I asked, mock incredulous. And he turned his neck, so his face pressed into the boards, the skin of his lip pushing out in a loop. My tummy. Something about the way he said it made me crouch down and look at him more closely. Then I pulled him up to sitting. I lavished on him all I had in my little reserve. Then you don't know about the wolf. I don't want to pretend, he groaned. This one's real, I promised. This was late May, maybe. The aspens and poplars were dropping their seeds in fluffy drifts that accumulated the way snow once did along the dirt driveway. I coaxed him into the garage with a few pretzels and buckled him in the bike while he ate them, slouched and helmeted, serenely disenchanted, looking big-headed and Buddha-like in his red plastic seat. I pulled the bike out onto the driveway and swung it a little menacingly when I climbed on. Here we go, I yelled, hoping to throw him off balance, hoping to thrill him into acting more like a kid. It was a long ride to the nature center, and the whole way there I told him wolf facts, wolf statistics, wolf stories. I intended to impress him with the taxidermy wolf in the lobby. I intended to point out the yellowed canines under her blue hooded lip, 
the cherry red drips of blood painted on her claws. I remembered the first time I had seen the wolf as a kid, how the feeling went beyond love, how it made me hungry, hungry, hungry. But Paul had no interest in the wolf at all. He looked at it for a few seconds and shrugged. After 11 miles on the bike, all he had to say was, that's not real. What he liked best at the center were puzzles. He found one on a shelf in the corner that exactly matched the one he had at home. It was a bucolic winter woodland scene, a snowy owl perched fatly on a black branch, eyes lidless and round as two open pots. Paul knew how to put this puzzle together by heart. So instead of looking at the wolf or the stuffed boxes, instead of fingering the rubber scat or dip dipping his little fingers into the wooden boxes and guessing at its contents, he sat cross-legged on the floor in the corner, piecing together the same puzzle he'd done a dozen times at home. I wandered around the center to kill time, read about the tea you can make from pine needles, watched goldfish circle Peg's aquarium. Eventually, nothing left to do, I went over and squatted next to Paul, who was holding a Swiss cheese slice of the owl's face in one hand. At first, it infuriated me that he didn't look up when I approached, that he didn't acknowledge me at all or wonder what I was doing. He scooched over automatically, let his body flow into mine, work its way into my lap. He never stopped studying the puzzle. He settled his body against mine, arranging leg over leg, till I finally had to sit fully on the floor. He assumed I was available and interested. He always just assumed. He bent double at the waist to reach the puzzle from the perch he'd taken on my lap, and outside, outside the window and down the road, whole mountains of poplar fluff drifted past. At first, I was annoyed, but then I was less so. I felt his chest expand with each breath against his nylon jacket and against my ribs. I felt the heat of his body through my jeans. He moved his fingers very knowingly from piece to piece, leaned his head back into me occasionally to assess. When he'd finished, he broke the puzzle up to do it again. Nope, I said, though I wasn't sure I meant it. By then, the room was going golden in the early evening sun. It was something I thought I should say, though. It's time, time to go. That's when he yawned, his skull stoppering up the breath between my clavicles. There was something about that that made me regret suggesting we leave, something about the simple gift of his body, its closeness and its heat, that made me want to stay a little longer. Then we were at the door, me zipping his jacket up, Peg ha handing him three gummy bears. And I asked him proddingly for Peg, did you have a nice time? He nodded in a way that moved his whole body up and down. That was a great puzzle, he said. Um, I will say there's one, that, that is the other section that, that deals with a wolf and, and does so, I think, in a really different way. Um, Paul doesn't see the wolf in any way the same way that Linda does. Um, and forces her to acknowledge that, that a wolf might not be a symbol for anything. It might just be a stuffed creature brought in for display. Um, and, and in other parts of her life, in other ways, Paul reminds her that she should see what's right in front of her um, and sometimes avoid telling stories.
With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Emily Fridlin and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Fridlin decided on the title, History of Wolves. Um, the, the story, as I said, uh, the novel began as a short story. Um, and that story uh, was called History of Wolves, and it was published as a short story called History of Wolves. And when I expanded the, this story into a novel, the novel always was called this. Long before I knew most other things about this book, I knew that it was called History of Wolves. Um, and my editor and my agent and all the, all the people who were involved um, never once asked me to change it. Um, so, so yes, it was, it was the title from the beginning. We had lots of fights about the cover, actually. Um, and one of the reasons we, I shouldn't say fights, we had lots of conversations about the, the cover. Um, and lots of different covers came and went. Um, and one of the reasons it ended up with kind of two covers was because the first cover they chose was this wolf. And they decided against that and decided to, to um, split the difference, I guess, and have, have, have a wolf but not have it so prominently featured. Um, I think in part because this book could have been mistaken f f by those, who, those, those people who hadn't read it yet as a, as a book you know, about wolves, a history of wolves, and they wanted to avoid that, um, that c potential confusion. But uh, no, we didn't have any fights. This question comes from an audience member asking about the creation of the character Lily and her connection to Linda. Yes, yeah, so, so I didn't speak much about her when I, when I introduced Mr. Gerson and um, her teacher. And, uh, but Lily does end up playing a role in the book. Um, Lily um, accuses Mr. Grierson um, of, of essentially a sexual assault. Um, and um, Linda is watching this happen. Um, she's not a part of that uh, at all, uh, but she talks to Lily um, and has uh, some kind of a relationship with Mr. Grierson. And, um, and it was important for me, in, in part, to think about with Lily, um, you know, Lily, Lily has one thing, um, and that, that is that she sees that there is a set of stereotypes about her that are sexual. and. Uh, and she knows it's a tool that she can potentially use. Um, this is not a world in which uh, the, the children or the girls in particular have much uh, that they can use. Um, and she wants to get out of Loose River like, <coughs> like Linda does, like so many others in the book do. And, and so one of the things she does is she uses uh, the assumptions about her um, that everyone has um, she uses them to her own benefit. And, and Linda is fascinated by that. Um, in other ways, um, other characters are, are telling stories um, about each other in order to get the things that they need and want. And uh, Linda both admires and disdains that. She's fascinated by it. Um, she sees it as one way to wield power. And, um, and so she's paying close attention. Another audience member asked how Fridlin felt about Peter Guy's review of her book when it first debuted. You know, I was, uh, this is my first book. I had never had reviews before, right? I didn't know, I mean, I, I was terrified to publish it to begin with, right? And, 
And, and so when the reviews came out, they were, there were some good ones and there were some more mixed ones, right? And, um, and that was horrifying to me, so scary, right? To be on a public stage and, and to try to understand how to negotiate that um, when I'm an incredibly private person in the rest of my life. And I think a lot of writers are, right? Um, I spend most of my life alone in my office, you know, in my walking in the woods in my own head. Um, so it was interesting to, to begin a conversation that was much more public by writing a book um, and to think that through a little bit. Um, I wrote this book not even thinking about publication and um, finished it and then, and then considered um, the, the possibilities of publication. Um, I thought his review was interesting. Um, I think we could, we could go back and forth on whether or not um, the facts were correct. I, I, I have my own defense and my own reasons for the things, the very particular things that he said. But it occurred to me at some point that that's not really the argument that's very interesting, you know, whether or not those particular things he pointed out were factually right. The more interesting conversation to me is um, what happens when you write a fiction um, and you invent a place. Loose River is invented. Most of the places in this book are invented, but you said it in a real world. Um, and so, yes, I do mention the Twin Cities. I mentioned Duluth. Um, I do mention real places. So I'm stitching together an invented place to a real place. Um, and the closer you get um, as a reader to the seam, let's say you live on that seam, the more you're going to be uneasy about that, right? Um, that's going to happen whether or not I'm writing about northern Minnesota or if I'm writing, you know, about fishing. I mean, I, I've I, I will come out and say this, I'm not a fishing person, Linda is, but I, I, I'm a Minnesotan, it's terrible to admit, but I, when I catch a fish, freak out and, and, and you know, try to throw, get the hook out as fast as possible and hope it doesn't die and throw it back. Um, so, so you're inventing a lot of things, but if you fish, maybe when you get to those sections of the book, you'll, you'll be uneasy, right? Because maybe not everything is as familiar to you as, um, as, as it could be. And so, so when you write a, a fiction, you are creating an invented world, uh, a, 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 a vision. And you're trying to draw in readers and have them believe in that vision. But there's always going to be seams. That's the thing I began to think about. And the question is, how do you draw in as many readers as possible and not have them stumble over those seams and, and make it hard for them, push them out of the fiction too much, right? Um, and so that's, that's just what I began thinking about. Um, I could have, and, and maybe in the next book, maybe uh, I could have not spoken about any actual place. I could have invented all the places, right? And so it got me thinking about why did I have some invented and some um, uh, actual places in the book. And part of the answer to that question is I did want to ground it in, um, in, in Minnesota and not just say Midwest. Or, um, I wanted it to be Minnesota. And I have my own particular and unique relationship to Duluth um, and, wanted, and, and wanted to talk about it in the way that I did. So. This question asker inquires what inspired Fridlin to write this book? As I said at the very beginning, I've always been a reader, one of those voracious readers who, who read all the time in the summers. Um, and I think if you're a reader, you're always a little bit of a writer too. I don't know if you'd agree with me on that. Um, but I think if you read enough, you, you end up wanting to, uh, to write something that you'd want to read, yeah? Um, and, that, and that seems like the very best thing you could possibly do with a life, is to create something that could be read, um, that you'd enjoy reading. Um, 
so that's probably part of it. I've always, I've always messed around with words and with language. Um, I, I read, um, n I read not the classics. I read, I read Babysitter's Club and Stephen King when I was growing up. Those columns of books were not, were not um, necessarily the, the, the most literary of books. But, um, but I will say, um, when I was about 14, I, I read, uh, my dad gave me a, a copy of um, Toni Morrison's Beloved, and um, I fell in love at that point with language. And at that point, I knew that not only did I want to write a book, but I wanted to write a book that used language in a way that, um, that, that created some kind of music and, and um, imagery and, and did something in the sentence, made a little magic with the sentence if possible. I think Toni Morrison's amazing with, with her sentences. And so I think that book was a, was a turning point in my desire to write as well. Our next question is about what Emily Fridlin is working on now. Um, so I had a collection of stories come out um, uh, in the fall. And actually, those stories were written mostly, not all, but mostly before this book was written. Um, so that happened, and I was, I was editing that um, after this came out. Um, and, and I've begun another novel at this point. Um, I will say I also gave birth in the last year um, and have a new son. He's just eight months old. And the, the honest answer is that um, I'm writing, but very, very slowly now. Um, I, I had this idea that I would write in nap time. And honestly, there are lots of times when I just nap in nap time. <laughs> So that, uh, I like to tell myself that's a kind of writing. Um, I wake up and I sometimes have an idea, but it's, it, it, it's, it's happening much more slowly. Um, I think it will come back. I miss, I miss it. I miss that, that headspace. Um, but it's not happening as much as it did right now. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Fridland's writing process looks like. Yeah, you know, I, I, I write. I, I, to go back to the Toni Morrison um, uh, reference, you know, and my love of language, I write, I write based on the sentence. Um, it's hard to explain, but I, I, I don't always know what's going to happen in the story. I knew that I knew that Paul was was going to die, but I didn't know a lot about how this would unfold, how I would tell it, the story um, when I started. Uh, but I did feel like I had this voice in my head, and I wanted to follow the sentences, um, one to the next. And there's a kind of rhythm that, that I, that I would, f would stumble upon, um, a sentence-level rhythm, right, um, that would get me f from one sentence to the next, one paragraph to the next, one scene to the next, and one chapter to the next. Um, and, and the story began to unfold in that way, in this kind of very organic but very slow way, because I didn't have a, a, an overarching plan an outline like some writers do at the beginning. When I had that rough draft that came out of the sentence, this sort of sentence level rhythm, um, I knew at that point I needed to shape it um, on the kind of more macro level, right? Um, it needed, um, there's a lot of play with time in this book, a lot of jumping between pa uh, past and present. Um, there's a lot of uh, jumping between plots. Um, and plot lines, as, as I talked about. And that required, uh, especially in revision, a lot of thoughtful reworking and experimentation. And so although I wrote the initial draft relatively slowly, but for me, um, fairly quickly, um, 
in maybe a few months to a year. It took several years after that to do that kind of macro level shaping um, that allowed me not to really change very much of the sentences because I didn't want to move the sentences around too much, but to move around scenes, to decide which chapters would come where and how, um, to allow this story to unfold in a way that would create the effects that I wanted to create. Um, so that work um, took, took a while too. I, you know, I studied, I'm just gonna sound like a nerd, I studied narrative theory when I was in school and I'm really interested in, in plotting and plots and pacing um, and, and thinking about that kind of macro level um, pacing or rhythm. And so, so it's like, I, first I worked on the, the micro level rhythm of the sentences and then I had to match that with the macro level rhythm of, of the whole book, the, the, the pacing from scene to scene and chapter to chapter. Um, and that was hard work. Thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. That wraps up our Ramsey County Library Roseville event with Emily Fridland. Make sure to catch our last Club Book podcast of the season with Samantha Irby at Hennepin County Library, Brooklyn Park. Samantha Irby is a comedian, blogger, and memoirist, and a decidedly unique voice in contemporary African-American literature. Her newest book, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, includes 20 side-splitting essays that reaffirm her reputation as a breathtakingly honest, and best of all, eminently relatable humorist. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.